in the Bible. We've kind of hit some areas that we don't normally discuss in church. And, uh, and if you've noticed me over the last few years, I don't like doing series. Um, I'm not creative enough for series. I, I find my comfort zone by going through books of the Bible and kind of drawing out the parallels and the truths and the principles that God wants to learn from it. But in doing so, sometimes we don't hit some of the things that are pertinent in our life right now. And uh, so over these last several weeks, we've hit some interesting subjects. Euthanasia, capital punishment, spanking, um, some of these different areas that we don't normally talk about. And one of the questions that came up in, our, in one of our discussions on our mission trip was, what about Christianity and drinking alcohol? I'm like, oh boy, there's an interesting one, always. And so this morning, I'm going to address that one, what I believe is a biblical principle. And um, so I want to just speak this morning on, on this subject of some thoughts regarding Christianity and the use of alcohol. And uh, let me say this, I fully understand this morning that many of you will not agree with what I'm going to share. I'm okay with that. As Dr. Johnny Hunt says, you have the right to be wrong. I'm just kidding. Just so you know, I'm just kidding. Uh, as I get started today, I want to just make a few statements. And number one is this. I don't drink alcohol. Ever. Period. Ever. It's my choice based off of what I believe is the best for me, based on my understanding of scriptures. Um, however, my decision to not drink alcohol was made long before I knew any biblical principles about alcohol. Um, I made that decision in eighth grade, and I've never wavered on that. Um, so they're my convictions. I'm not saying that my convictions need necessarily be your convictions, but they're mine. If you drink alcohol, number two, I'm not going to stand up here and say that you're in sin because of it. I don't think anywhere in Scripture that the Bible specifically condemns thou shalt not ever, ever, ever touch alcohol. I don't believe that's there. You may. I don't. However, I believe there are some... Uh, resounding principles revolving around that thought that should guide us as believers. And I'll share those a little bit later. Number three, please do not misconstrue or jump to conclusions of what you may think I think of you because you drink. Um, I know several of you do drink. That's your choice. You stand before God for what you do. Just like you stand before God whether you eat too much or whether you, you know, drink too much coffee or anything else under the sun. You give an account for God for what you do and who you are. So please don't misconstrue and jump to a conclusion that, oh, pastor thinks less of me because I, he knows I drink. Not the case. You stand before God, not me. And number four, I'm going to share some facts and statistics, and then I'm going to break down some verses in Scripture. Um, but I want to start off with a couple of stories and comments that helped me draw to the conclusion that I will never drink alcohol. Um, there was a gentleman from my home church who witnessed the aftermath of a tragic accident. Uh, he was coming home in the wee hours of the morning after working a long, uh, long evening shift. And as he turned the corner coming into town, he didn't see the accident, but he saw the aftermath of an accident. And in that aftermath, he looked up and he saw a gentleman walking drunk down a sidewalk, staggering, just kind of going about his merry way. In his rear was the accident that just took place where there was a woman who was and her baby who were thrown from the vehicle. And the woman was pinned against the sidewalk and her head was pinned in between the sidewalk and her car. 
and she was screaming to someone help her baby who was 20, 30 yards away crying. And I remember hearing that story, I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to do that. I don't know whether I'm one that can control an appetite for certain things. If you've noticed, I'm not a little tiny guy. I have some size to me. Um, In my family, we have a pretty large bone, large mass family, except for my skinny little brother who we we tease who was adopted. Um, He has not learned to eat yet. Um, He's four years older than me, but we tease him still. Um, There are certain propensities that each of us have. I know it may not seem this way to you, but as I stand before people, I am constantly aware of my size. I'm a big guy. And as my doctors have proven on numerous occasions, I walk into the, uh, to the doctor's office. It's not, hi, Ken, how are you doing? It's, hey, how much have you exercised this week? Because everybody knows if you're big and fat, you just eat like a horse, and you don't exercise, and you're just clearly out of shape, right? I mean, that's just the given. That's what I've heard my entire life. But because of my family genetic makeup, I am constantly aware of my size. And whether you believe me or not, I guarantee half of you probably eat more than I do. But I'm big. And I know that if I did not watch my weight and did not watch as much as I do, I could easily be 500 pounds. I believe that. I do believe that. Because of the propensity that some of us have, and I don't care whether you call it gene pool or lack of discipline or whatever you want to call it, DNA structure, I just know that there are certain things that if I were to open myself up to it, I don't know that I could stop. I just don't know that. I mean, if one cheeseburger is good, two's better, right? If one hot dog's good, two's great. If one, one beer is good, two's better. So we might think. So I've always had to guard myself. And I'm always thinking, I want to make sure that when I preach the counsel of God, I'm preaching the whole counsel of God. And I don't want to withdraw from some subjects because I have a struggle with that subject. I want to make sure that I am standing rightly before God in all the areas of my life, as I hope you would. So my choice to do it is because I don't think it would be best for me. But I also believe that there's a scriptural side to that as well. A second illustration of that was the same Sunday school teacher that I had was a high-end executive um, for several big, large companies in the 80s and 90s. And because of it, he was flying two, three days a week during those years. Um, on one of his plane trips, um, he sat down in the aisle, first class, and as he would typically do, he'd let the flight take off, he'd get up at cruising altitude, and then he would begin conversations with those around him in first class. One particular guy or day, he, he looked across the aisle, and there was a guy right here, dressed fairly nice, and... Uh, as his custom was, he began a conversation. And come, come, out to f- come to find out, he is one of the family members of Anheuser Bush. And as they got to talking about alcohol, this gentleman looked at my Sunday school teacher and said, No, I don't drink. Beer is made to be sold, not drunk. I thought that was always interesting. I've never forgot that. Here you have a guy who is part owner of a, I'm sure, multi, multi-million dollar company. 
He says, no, I don't drink. Beer is made to be sold, not drunk. I always thought that was interesting. Why? Because it's there to make money. It's not there to enjoy for most of those family members. Number three, I can't tell you how many times as a pastor over the years, someone could come up to me and hear me out. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm not trying to be critical of who they are or what they do. How you spend your money is between you and God. It's none of my business. But I kid you not, I had someone come up to my house one day. As they opened the door, several cans of beer rolled out their car door and started rolling down the driveway. And then they're asking me for money to pay their heat bill. Is that not a, some, you know, a situation to say, hmm? Because as I walk through the store, I know that liquor is a whole lot more expensive than tea, than water, than anything else. And over the years, I have watched numerous families who, quote-unquote, struggled, but they didn't seem to struggle buying the alcohol. And in my mind, that formed an opinion. If you can't afford it, why do you persist in doing this? Because it's a priority, and more than a priority, it's oftentimes a necessity for someone who will not admit that they have a dependency upon it. And in ministry, number four, my wife and I have observed the harmful effects of alcohol abuse in many, for over many years now. As we have dealt with families whose addictions to alcohol have been horrendous. You say, well, I can control it. And most people think they can when they start. And maybe you are one that can, between you and God. But we've had numerous phone calls over the years at 2, 3, 4 in the morning. Can you come help us? My mom's dead. Mom wasn't dead. Mom was just passed out drunk. And I've walked into homes and I've said, I'm taking your children. No, you're not. Stop me. I've had to do that. I've seen the harmful negative effects of it. And because of it, I just don't think it's wise. Let me give you a few statistics. Um, I don't know if... Great, thanks, Ben. These are statistics that are current. And when I say current, I mean from... Some of them come from 2012. Some of them are from 2015, current. But I did not go past 2012. And this is from a couple of different organizations. One is from the one called SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration, which is part of the government. Uh, that one is coming from, some of the statistics come from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. And the third set of statistics come from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. So these are current statistics. More than half of all adults drink alcohol with 6.6% meeting the criteria for alcohol use disorder, in other words, abuse. More than 17.3 million adults currently are addicted to alcohol. Slightly more than half of all Americans aged 12 or older report being current drinkers of alcohol. Wow, 12. What's the legal drinking age? Right. How are they getting it? Friends? Parents, stealing, whatever. According to the SAMHSA Report Behavioral Health, United States 2012, about 24% of 8th graders and 64% of 12th graders used alcohol in the past year. According to the 2013 National Survey of Drug Use and Health, approximately 5.4 million people ages between 12 and 20 engage in binge drinking. And when they consider binge drinking, at least five drinks at a sitting... 
Um, Shamsha also says there are approximately 450,000 teenagers who are alcoholics in the U.S. The Center for Disease Control puts it at over 3 million. So whether it's 450,000 to 3 million, I don't know, but both statistics say one or the other. 17,274 persons died last year in alcohol-related accidents. That's an average of one every 32 minutes. That means before we leave, two souls will have slipped into eternity due to their choice to drink alcohol. That's sad. On the weekends, between 10 p.m. and 1 a.m., 1 in 13 people on the highway are drunk. Between 1 a.m. and 6 a.m. on the weekend, 1 in every 7 are drunk. In the past 10 years, more people have died due to alcohol than all who died in the Vietnam War. We, we gripe about war, but what about alcohol? Same difference. Youth who use alcohol at any level are seven and a half times more likely to use illicit drugs. So alcohol is really just a gateway because it, what satisfies you is for one section of your life no longer satisfies and I have to give something else to continue to get me buzzed or whatever. It's a gateway. According to the 2013 NSDUH, approximately 1.4 million people ages 12 to 20 engaged in heavy drinking. 4,358 people under age 21 die each year from alcohol-related car crashes, homicides, suicides, alcohol poisoning, and other injuries such as falls, burns, and drowning. That's 50%, by the way, of all teen deaths are due to alcohol-related more than 190,000 people under age 21 visited emergency rooms for alcohol-related injuries. 1,825 college students between the ages of 18 and 24 die every year from alcohol-related unintentional injuries. College students who just going out having fun. 1,825 deaths a year. More than 690,000 students between ages 18 and 24 are assaulted by another student who has been drinking. So they weren't even drinking themselves. They were just the product of being in the area of someone else who was drinking and out of control. More than 97,000 students between ages 18 and 24 are victims of alcohol-related sexual assault or date rape. Doesn't, you don't think alcohol can have the, the ability to control this next one is astounding to me. 60% of women diagnosed with a sexually transmitted disease were infected while drinking alcohol. I can't tell you how many times I've met somebody over the years who got pregnant out of wedlock when they were drunk. It happens. But 60% of all sexually transmitted diseases. 599,000 students between the ages of 18 and 24 receive unintentional injuries while under the influence of alcohol. They're drinking, but just, doggone it, because I'm flimsy, because my mind's not right, whatever, they hurt themselves. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, alcohol use causes 88,000 deaths a year. Some statistics quote the number to be above 100,000. Excessive drinking accounts for 1 in 10 deaths among the working age adults in the United States. And people might say wine is a cultural thing. Well, some information there I discovered about drinking in France where they say they drink wine in place of water. The average Frenchman drinks 65 gallons of wine each year. That's a bunch. But don't laugh, some of you drink that much Coke. <laughs> and some of you, I know, drink more than that in coffee. So The moderation fact goes out the window. But in France, alcohol is the number one health menace. 23,000 people die of liver disease. Ten times more die here, there than due, due to alcohol-related disease than in the U.S. 
And one-third of every traffic accident in France is alcohol-related. One-third. One out of three accidents alcohol-related. Thank you, Ben. So let me just say this. As I said from the beginning, I'm not going to sit up here and say, every one of you have ever had to drink or you drink regular, you're in sin. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying there is some wisdom in abstaining. And I think there are some, certainly some scriptural principles that would lend towards that conclusion. For many years, a lot of sincere Christians have debated this subject. I can remember, and, I, and I'm telling you, I've had this subject with my own family, this conversation, numerous times over the last ten years. Um, I've had it with other teenagers over the last ten years. I've had it with other young adults. And let me just say, a person convinced against their own will is of the same Opinion still, right? You're not gonna, I'm not going to change your opinion. But hopefully God's Word can make you at least think through the process a little bit. Um, so the Bible does give us some clear warning about destructive and addictive nature of alcohol. So if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to Proverbs 20, verse 1. I want to just look at four passages that deal with warning of alcohol. And then I'm going to talk about what is sinful about alcohol. And then we're going to look at some other principles that would guide us in our thoughts towards it. Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler, and whoever staggers because of them is not wise. So what I want us to think about for a few moments this morning is something that is wise versus something that is unwise. Something that says, hey, there's wisdom in doing this, or there's no wisdom in doing this. So when we see this in this light, wine is a mocker. Is that positive or negative? Negative sense. It says beer is a brawler. What's that mean? It means it makes you have a tendency, as you, the more you consume, for a lot of people, to get, become agitated very easily, to you know, become a brawler. Whoever staggers because of them is not wise. The person that says is consumed by this, who is involved in this, is not wise. Proverbs 21, verse 17, just over a page. 21, 17 says this. The one who loves pleasure will become a poor man, and whoever loves wine and oil will not get rich. I, as I said earlier, I can't tell you how many times I've had someone ask me for help with their utilities, but they have plenty of funds to buy their liquor. I don't get that. It's because one is a priority, the other one is not. One is uh, something that they enjoy. The other one is, well, I guess they enjoy it, but not enough to put their money towards that. So the one who loves pleasure will become poor man, but whoever loves wine and oil will not get rich. In other words, it robs you of wealth that you could have. Proverbs 23, over just a couple more pages. Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has conflicts? Who has complaints? Who has wounds for no reason? Who has red eyes? Those who linger over wine, those who go looking for mixed wine. Now, you say, well, you can have all those things apart from wine. Yes, you can. Just to be fair, yes, you can. But it says, don't gaze at wine because it is red when it gleams in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and stings like a viper. That's what God's Word says about wine. Now, is that positive or negative? Just coming from God's Word. Negative. It says, Your eyes will see strange things. 
and you will say absurd things. You'd be like someone sleeping out at sea or lying down on the top of a ship's mast. In other words, the movement, even though you're not on the ship, you're not on the waves, but you're going to feel like you are. They struck me, but I feel no pain. They beat me, but I didn't know it. When will I wake up? I'll look for another drink. This tells you it's the attitude of someone who has to have wine. Someone who has to have their alcohol. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, I think gives us another principle to live by. It says, And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled with the Spirit. So the important thing that Ephesians 5.18 teaches us is that don't get drunk. We know that drunkenness is wrong, right? No question about that. Drunkenness is wrong. No debate. But what's better is be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit. So a person who is given to wine, a person who is consumed by it, there is a recklessness about them. Their mind is not stable. Their actions are not stable. Leads to all kinds of problems. So we know that wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler, whoever staggers because of it is not wise. It's also very clear that drunkenness is always wrong. Uh, Look over to Romans chapter 13, verse 13. Romans 13, verse 13 says this. Let us walk with decency as in the daylight, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. Just a caveat to why we may drink. Why do a lot of people drink? Well, it relaxes me. Or I do enjoy the taste. Or it soothes me. Maybe even buy into... What doctors say, well, there's some medicinal effect that's good for you from it. But in God's Word it says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions, make no plans to satisfy the flesh. If it's something I'm doing to satisfy problems that I may be going through, if it's something I'm doing to satisfy struggles and anxiety and frustrations that I'm going through, well, that's the wrong reason to do it. Because then I'm trying to satisfy my flesh and, and, and suppress the, the feelings that are there. Then, that, then it becomes something that is wrong. In Galatians chapter 5, over a few more pages, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. This is what God's Word says is a work of the flesh. It's fleshly. In other words, it's not spirit, it's flesh. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. And he says, I tell you about these things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, as I said before, can we highlight drunkenness over gluttony, or over sexual idolatry, or over sorcery? No, it's in the list. And these are the things that we're to guard against and not to let become part of our life as believers. 
So these things should not be practiced by a person who claims the name of Jesus Christ. So he says those who are part of this will not inherit the kingdom of God. If drunkenness consumes your life, it's very clear what the result is. 1 Peter chapter 4. And verse 3. It says, For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the pagans choose to do. And what is that? Carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, lawless idolatry, and so forth. So he says drunkenness is, is compared to what? Pagan lifestyle. Becoming part of a pagan lifestyle. Habakkuk chapter 2, way back in the Old Testament. Verse 15 says, Woe to him who gives his neighbors a drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. So there's a woe to that, obviously. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, But now I am writing to you not, at, not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat it with such a person. So if a person is consumed by being drunk, that's in the list, along with other things, you're not even to associate with them if they claim to be a believer. So these are things that we obviously know two facts here. It clearly says that, in, in there, and let me just say this I mean, in all fairness, there are two passages in Scripture where alcohol is given a positive light, and I'll talk about those. But by and large, generally speaking, alcohol is cast in a negative light. And, uh, and then those who are deceived by it, who become drunk because of it, are in sin. That's undeniable. That's unquestionable. That's fact. The Bible is also clear that mature Christians should avoid causing others to stumble. Um, I won't take the lo- a lot of time here, but in Romans chapter 14, you know the verse... It is a noble thing not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything that makes your brother stumble. So if someone says, well, hey, I'm doing it in the privacy of my home. Nobody knows I do it. Then it's between you and God. It is. But we're not to do it in such a way that may cause a brother who has maybe been overly taken or who is an addicted, has an addiction to alcohol or who is an alcoholic We're not to drink it in such a way that would cause them to stumble and want to go back to it. That's clear. Proverbs 31, verses 4 through 7. says, It is not for kings, Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire beer. Otherwise they will drink, forget what is decreed, and pervert justice for all the oppressed. Give beer to one who is dying and wine to one whose life is bitter. Let him drink so that he can forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. I said there are two passages of Scripture. One where Paul encourages Timothy for the stomach's sake. And one, in this passage, um, give beer to one who is dying and wine to one whose life is bitter. It's the idea where, they're, where, where life is about to end. They're, they're in anxiety. They're in fearfulness. The best I... I take this passage to understand and to mean is that when someone is about to die they're going through despair, they're going through trouble give it to them 
because they're about to pass. But that passage coupled with others says that we're not to do it for to fulfill the pleasures of our flesh. And so 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3 and 8 says, you know, as far as leadership, and let, and let me just pass this back just for a moment. We know throughout history kings have a lot of authority, a lot of power. Would you agree? Look back over the history of kings and kingdoms. Kings can do whatever they want. They're the king. If you challenge a king, you're probably going to go off with the head. You can do whatever you want. You're the king. But what does Proverbs remind kings? It is not for kings, Lemuel, not for kings to drink. Why? Lest you forget what is decreed and pervert justice for all the oppressed. It's not to be given for kings because it said it would cloud your, your wisdom. It would cloud your decision-making process. Don't take that step. So kings, even though they did it, God's Word reminded them, don't do it. What about leaders for churches? I can't tell you, in all honesty and sincerity in my heart, how many of my pastoral friends who took a stance on no alcohol whatsoever over the last 20 years are now beginning to find their liberties in drinking. I have three or four friends who are pastors in, in churches who are now posting on, on, on Facebook, showing them their beer and what, what, what beer and wine they're drinking tonight. As if they're flaunting it to all of us who don't drink, that you should, hey, try this out, it's good. I don't care. But it's not something to be flaunted. It's not something that I believe pastors should take part in. That's my opinion, that's my belief, that's my, my understanding of Scripture. Because in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says in verse 3 and 3, not addicted to wine, not a bully but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. Verse 8, deacons likewise should be worthy of respect, not hypocrite, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money. So, so the key is the amount maybe, the moderation? Could be. But if kings were not to touch it, why should we do it as ministers? And I don't care what anyone says, my job as a minister of the gospel is the highest calling I know of. I used to think, no, I'm not a professional. You know, this doctor has a greater degree of respect to me. You know what? Anymore, I stand on the Word of God, and it's important that I do so. And I don't want to cloud my mind, my judgment, my ability to make decisions based on sound wisdom. In verse, chapter, uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 7 says, For an overseer as God's administrator must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not addicted to wine, not a bully, not greedy for money. So if it has to be in my life, then I exempt myself from being a pastor. If it has to be there. If there's an addiction to it, I exempt myself. I disqualify myself. I want to share a couple more things here. What does God expect from His children I believe that God's word is very specific for us, of what he expects of us. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15 says, See then that you walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise. Make full use of your time, because days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, which is in dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So in, these, in this verse here, he's, he's comparing two things, wise versus unwise, right? We see that in Scripture. And then in the next breath he says, Therefore, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So what is the association? What is the presupposition here? 
that if I'm unwise, I'm going to be given to wine. If I'm wise, I'm not going to be given wine. I'm going to be filled with the Spirit. So the point the Lord makes is that the wisest person is the one who is being filled with the Holy Spirit rather than wine. John MacArthur wrote, Being filled with the Spirit is using wisdom in determining the will of God, whereas being drunk is being out of God's will and acting foolish. I agree with him. Um, growing up in Spring Lake Park, Minnesota, as a youth, um, we lived right next door to a huge bar. That bar covered more space than our church. It was huge. It was called University Park Bar and Lounge. We lived right next door. There was a six-foot fence that separated the parking lot of the University Park Bar and Lounge and our house. I can tell you, as a second, third, fourth, fifth grader living there, that every Friday night, or many Friday nights throughout the summer, many Saturday mornings, which I enjoyed, I'll tell you why in a minute, but many Friday nights we had drunkards walk into our front yard. They had no clue what they were doing. They had no clue where they were. They had just stumbled out of the bar and walked into my front yard. And they looked like dummies. Why? Because they were being controlled by the liquor and not by their sound judgment mind. Saturday mornings we used to go over there and find dollar bills, $10 bills, $20 bills, coins, regularly. That was a source of income for me as a kid. <laughs> just saying, we live next door to the bar. <laughs> they're, thumbing for, they're thumbing for their keys and the wall change come out and they just leave it. We found dollar bills, $5 bills, $10 every Saturday morning. But drunk, being drunk is being out of God's will and acting foolishly. Listen to the text again, Proverbs 20. Wine is a mocker, in other words, it makes you foolish. Wisdom and knowledge easily eludes. Strong drink is a brawler, it makes you aggressive. It says, whoever is led astray by is not wise. So God wants his children to be wise in all things. And one thing that will lead them away from his wisdom is wine and strong drink. Let me give you some food for thought just for a moment. Some questions that maybe you can answer in your own mind. Is drinking wine the same as in, in the Bible as it is today? Don't answer that out loud because I want to talk about that in a minute. So when you see the word wine in Scripture, is it the same wine that we might see on the shelf today? Just thought. Secondly, is drinking alcohol necessary? In other words, can I do without it? Is it best for me? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 says, All things are lawful. But not all things are expedient. In other words, not all things are necessary. They're not beneficial for you. It may be completely legal because you're 21. That's not the point. It may be completely legal and justifiable for you to do it. But is it build up? Is it beneficial? Is it good for you? That's another question. Over the years, I said, well, I've, I've talked to people who said, well, I can do without it. Can you? I mean... Can you go a week without it? Just a thought. Well, so why don't you jump on someone about their caffeine addiction? Well, I asked that question too. Can you do without it? Because 1 Corinthians 6 says, I should not be brought under the power of anything. In other words, I, it should not be in a, such, in a situation as such that I have to have it. Um, you, th- you don't think you're addicted, you're addicted to soda? Go a, couple, go a few days without it. You're addicted to coffee? Go a few days without it. 
You're not addicted to donkeys? Go a couple days without it. Oh, now you're meddling. You know, but we shouldn't be brought under the power of anything, God's Word says. But especially for a believer to be under this power. Number three is drinking alcohol the best choice. Number four, is it possible that drinking alcohol could be habit-forming? One in ten, some, some statistics say one in seven, who take their first drink will become alcoholics. That's current statistic. One, one, one stat says one in seven, the other one says one in ten. How do you know, if you're not a drinker and you're contemplating it, how do you know whether you're the one in seven or the one in ten? Just asking. Do you know? And maybe you said, well, I've tried it, I'm not. Okay, good for you. I hope you're not. Is drinking alcohol potentially destructive? Well, we know that answer. Could drinking alcohol possibly be offensive to other Christians? Yes. Is it wise for me to have any part of something that has such great potential for destruction? And can you drink alcohol before God and others for his glory and his glory alone? Because 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. In principle, can you do it to the glory of God? And maybe you can. I'm not here to judge. I'm just telling you what Scripture says to challenge your thinking. Number two, is the wine served today the same as biblical wine? If our basis for drinking is that biblical wine uh, way back then is the same wine today, if that's our reasoning, let's consider that. A couple words here. Strong drink, it says in Proverbs 20, verse 1, is rate. Uh, strong drink, it's the Hebrew word shakar, or in the Greek word sakara, and it means unmixed wine, intoxicants other than wine. It is universally condemned in the Bible. That word uh, in the Hebrew shakar, and the Greek word in the New Testament, uh, sakara, is universally condemned in Scripture. The only exception is found in Proverbs 31.6, where it is given as a portion to relieve the pains of sorrow and death when someone is ready to pass. It was considered an ancient narcotic, similar to what we have today in the area of narcotics. People today, uh, when they're about to pass, there is often sometimes, especially for unbelievers, a great amount of angst or, or anxiousness and, and so forth. And in today's economy, we have what? Who's called in when someone's about ready to pass? Hospice. And what does hospice and the doctors do? They give them medication to, to soothe them, to calm them, to make them pain-free as they pass. So in one regard, we can say what it was used for in biblical days is not necessary for our day. In Proverbs 31.4, once again, it's not for kings, not for kings to drink. So it is a strong drink. It has that, it has that ability. So what is strong drink and why is it condemned? Well, Proverbs 23, as we already said, it, has, it, it makes people not right in their mind in some cases. So the word wine, we looked at strong drink, wine, is the Hebrew word yayan and the Greek word oinos. It's a general word meaning fermented or unfermented. It can be used either way. And it's used about 141 times in Scripture. It can mean intoxicating wine and or non-intoxicating wine, honestly. But here's the assumption here. Everybody assumes that Jesus made intoxicating wine in John 2. Wine was both intoxicating and non-intoxicating in Scripture. And some of you might say, well, I know it was intoxicating. Okay, well, that's your choice to believe that. 
But I find it interesting thought to think that Jesus would give something that would have a potential of destruction when so much of Scripture says not to do it. That's my opinion. I think it's an oxymoron. I think it's unbiblical thought process to say that Jesus is going to give his people something that certainly much of the Old Testament says don't be a part of. Yayen was said to be used primarily as a water purifier. After fermentation, it would be diluted with water. In Isaiah chapter 16 and verse 10, it is used to describe the juice of unfermented grapes as it was being treaded out. It was unfermented. It had not sat long enough to ferment. It was basically used as a purifier. And I'll explain the process in just a moment. In Isaiah 65 verse 8, the Hebrew word tarash, it also refers to the grape on the vine and the juice is still in the hull of the grape. So wine is used and described in the Old Testament as grapes in the hull, grape juice being tread out, and a drink that a certain condition should be left alone because it is a mocker leading one away from the path of wisdom. And the way you can tell the content of a drink is the context in which you put it. The context of the person and the character of the person saying it. In other words, in some places, it was used in such a way to purify. New Testament wine, oinos, consider John 2. You never find the context of drunkenness in John 2. If you read through John chapter 2, you won't find Jesus talking about people getting drunk. It wasn't the process. It wasn't there. Uh, There's no mention as to whether or not the wine is intoxicating. The context is the key, I believe. Jesus never said the word wine or wine bibber. When the Pharisees were accusing him of associating with sinners, Jesus said, fruit of the vine and the cup. I don't believe that Jesus would advocate anything that would bring devastation on your body. Would you Would you agree? Would Jesus tell you to drink something that would be harmful to you? I I don't think he would. That's just my opinion. Anything that would bring devastation to your body, influence you to ruin your testimony or bring shame to your family, steal away the dignity of your life, or put in jeopardy the lives of so many people, as the statistics over and over and over point out. Habakkuk 2.15 Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor. The end of that verse is the cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you and utter shame will be on your glory. So this, this has the, the potential of destroying a testimony. Is this what Jesus did in John 2? Did he disobey the word of God and bring judgment on himself? I don't think so. So generally speaking, we see that the Bible universally condemns strong drink and wine. It can be seen as intoxicating and non-intoxicating, true. But there's a difference with what we're being served today and what the Bible said of wine. Let me give you an example. The fermentation process of Scripture. Typically, wine was grape juice mixed with dates, apples, honeycomb, pomegranates, etc. Grapes and other fruit was boiled until the liquid evaporated. Boiled until the liquid evaporated, leaving a thick, unintoxicating paste like jelly. And it was used like for food and still is used today in the Middle East. And let me say, Pastor, you don't know anything about fermenting. You're absolutely 100% right. But the Google has site after site after site after site after site after site explaining this. It's there. Do the research yourself. In biblical times, in Middle East, ancient days, the liquids were boiled out to form a paste. The paste then would be used to, dilute, to be diluted. 
Plutarch, a Greek essayist, writing in, on, in, in his Moralia, that filtered wine neither inflames the brain nor infects the mind and passions. It is much more pleasant to drink. He likened this kind of wine to have no alcoholic content. What kind of wine? The wine that was used and mixed. In other words, it was filtered out, it was mixed with water to help treat the bacteria and so forth. Dr. Newman, a professor of chemistry in Berlin, said, It is observable that when sweet juices are boiled down to a thick consistency, they not only do not ferment in that state, but are easily brought into fermentation when diluted with as much water as they had lost in evaporation. The wine evidently lost much of its intoxicating properties after being reconstituted. Obviously, the wine that was consumed in biblical times was not what we know as wine today. It was more of a concentrated grape juice with its intoxicating properties basically removed. So you cannot defend on the basis, well, wine is in Scripture, and it was used then as being the same wine that people would drink today. It's not the same. Now, can I say in fairness that there was not intoxicating wine? No, of course not. You see Scripture saying that it's forbidden. It can't forbid something that's not there. It's there. Obviously. But the ones who are deceived by it are not wise. One study by Yale University concluded the normal process of fermentation of the fruit of the vine does not produce a drink with sufficient alcohol content to bring on drunkenness. There must be a mechanical interference with the normal process such as the addition of pure alcohol or a mechanical process of distillation or it will not produce the kind of wine that is common today. What's he saying here? It's all within the fermentation process and it's in the distillation process. Okay, how many of you like Discovery Channel? Come on, that's my show. That's my channel. Have anybody watched, what's the show? Um, Moonshiners, yeah. What are they doing in that process? Distilling. It's the distillation process that raises the alcoholic content. And the fermentation process, and I've been told as you read, as you study, as you go on Google and look for yourself, there is a monster difference between heat filtered versus cold filtered. One has a higher rate of fermentation than the other. One's almost non-existent where the other one is rapid fermentation, higher alcohol content. One Hebrew Jewish scholar wrote, unmixed wine was the most intoxicating drink. In other words, it's not mixed with water to be diluted. Not used to control a bacteria. All the wine was light wine, not fortified with extra alcohol. Concentrated alcohol was only known in the Middle Ages when the Arabs invented distillation. What is now called liquor or strong drink and the 20% fortified wines were unknown in biblical times. And the wine of biblical days is simply not comparable to the wine we're being served today. It's not the same. The, the fermentation process is completely different. Two more. Dr. Robert Stein, in an article of Christianity Today, tells us that liquid wine was stored in large jugs called amphorae. The pure, unmixed wine would be drawn out of these jugs and poured into large bowls called craters, where it was mixed with water. From these craters, it would then be poured into kylix, or cups. Wine would never be served directly from the amphora without first being mixed. According to other historical data on this period, the mixture could be as high as 20 to 1 or as low as 1 to 1, so 50-50. Um, drinking unmixed wine was looked upon by Greek culture as barbaric. And number eight, while the Bible does not condemn drinking wine completely, I believe it does condemn what we are being served today due to alcohol content. It's not the same. What about communion? The leavened bread was to have no foreign substance like yeast, which is what causes fermentation. 
Real wine has a foreign substance, and we are representing the blood of Jesus Christ, and you want to drink something that is mechanized like that. And then number three, what is the influence of a Christian who drinks? Romans chapter 14, verses 14 through 21, verse 21 specifically. It is good neither to eat, drink, eat meat, or drink wine, or do anything by which a brother stumbles or is offended or made weak. And this seems to be the issue where the debate hits. Well, I can drink if I just don't offend anyone who is a brother. All things are lawful, but all things are not profitable. Outside of medicinal use as a narcotic, I wonder if there's any way in which alcohol is truly helpful. And I, you know, watch Dr. Oz to tell you a good glass of red wine will help the heart. Maybe there's truth to it. I don't know. So will exercise. But one seems to be preferable over the other. We don't like discipline. It's easier to drink than it is to exercise. I mean, I'm just saying... Anybody agree? I mean, so my question is, is it helpful? One way to never abuse alcohol is to never take your first drink. Some say, well, it's good for business. Well, for every dollar in revenue from alcohol, it costs $8 to clean up a mess it leaves. And that comes from a government statistical base that says across the United States, for every dollar it brings in, we're spending eight to fix problems, whether health, whether it's a menace to society, whether it's reconstruction of buildings, car accidents, whatever. One to eight. Is it really beneficial? Only to the people who are selling it. 50% of parents are saying teens should explore the drinking so they'll drink responsible. Is that crazy or what? Um, just this week when I was talking to a couple of people in our church, they said, yeah, my kids were thinking about drinking and uh, their parents were letting them do it because they said, well, at least if they're drinking in my house, I can watch them. That's absurd. That's insanity. You know, why don't we just tell our kids to come in here and have an immoral relationship as long as we give them protection? And that's just ins- it's insanity. You don't do something that is going to cause harm. Just my opinion. Peter Kors interve- interviewed by the USA Today in an article about drinking age. He said the drinking age should be lowered so teenagers will know how to drink responsibility. Isn't that wonderful that a guy who owns a beer company says, I think you ought to lower the age. I'm just saying We shouldn't be preaching don't drink. We should be preaching responsible drinking. Maybe the answer is lowering the drinking age so kids learn to be responsible about drinking at younger ages. And then he says, I'm not an advocate of trying to get people to drink, but kids are drinking now anyway. If you're not an advocate, why are you saying lower the age? All we've done is criminalize them, he says. What I would like to see this country do is have a situation where kids could learn to drink responsible over time. Keep the contradiction in mind here. But there should be zero tolerance for apparent behavior. We're well, going to tell a kid to drink responsible and then say, but if you get in trouble, that's not going to be acceptable. Zero tolerance. That's crazy. What if I went out with our teenagers to Applebee's in order to drink? Would there be any different with me than anyone else? I mean, am I pointing out that it's okay? Am I giving a message that everything's acceptable? I think we need to guard what we teach and model in front of our kids. I don't know whether my kids are one of the seven. I don't know. I think we need to guard it, though. Why am I against drinking wine, beer, and strong drink? I'll just tell you. As I said in the beginning, I don't drink. I'm never going to drink. You're never going to catch me with that. Number one, alcohol is potentially addictive quality, bringing us under the bondage, and we have a hard time with the flesh anyway. 1 Corinthians says, I will not be brought under the power of anything. 
If you wonder whether or not you're under the power of alcohol, try not drinking it for a week. Just see how your body responds to that, how your brain responds to that. Just, just, a, just a theory. And I would say do the same thing with caffeine and soda and coffee. Same difference. We're not to be brought under the power of anything. My doctor four weeks ago took me off grain and dairy. You don't think you're addicted to bread? <laughs> Take me off. As the guy stood there, he goes, I know you're a big man, but you might be malnutritioned. I had to laugh. That was funny. I don't care what anyone says. That was hilarious. Yeah, I'm malnutritioned, all right. Uh, we love... that we, in our mind, say that we can do without, but I wonder if we truly can. Can you do without it? Or have you become addicted to something that you didn't know you were addicted to? Ask it. Try it. Test it. Number two, alcohol has so many potentially destructive qualities. We've seen the harmful effects of it. We know how it has destroyed thousands upon thousands of families because people couldn't control it. And some people can. More power to you. I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm just saying. There are people who can't. And it has destroyed families all across America. Ask a woman whose husband has been abusive and, and, and badgering them in, in, a, in, in a drunken brawl whether or not they like alcohol or not. We've seen both sides of that. Number three, alcohol is very often a substitute for real joy. It soothes me. It satisfies me. It relaxes me. Whatever. Is it a substitute for letting God do those things? Just asking. Just putting that question out there. Is it? Number four, alcohol could offend someone who may use alcohol abusively because of your approval of it. It could cause someone else to stumble. Um, throughout time, there's always been the debate. Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it acceptable? Is it unacceptable? For me, it's not acceptable. And I pray for my family it's not. But I also know that my kids are going to grow up in a different world than what I grew up in. And I pray to God they make right choices in that area. I pray that they will choose to abstain from it rather than accept it because of its qualities and what it has the potential to do. As I said in the beginning, am I saying if you drink, you're absolutely 100% in sin? I'm not saying that. But I think wisdom says, I don't need it, let me do without it. I think its potential for harm is greater than its potential for good. And if you're deceived by it, God's word says you're not wise. I've seen the destruction of it. And for me, the decision was made long before I knew anything about Scripture. And I hope that if you are one who does drink, that you'll at least be challenged by the thought. Is it best? Is it right? Is it beneficial? Is it causing me to go down a path that I shouldn't go down? I don't know. Just answer those questions in your own mind. And determine whether or not God would have you just continue in that activity. And once again, unless you think I'm up here judging, it's no different than gluttony, no different than stealing. Sin is sin if you're being drunk. 
That's clearly sin. If you're being deceived by it, that's clearly sin. I've also asked those who are in leadership here to abstain from it. I've asked our leadership not to participate in it in any way, shape, or form. And a couple of them have said, you know what, I'll respect that. And I appreciate that. Am I the pastoral police that looks in your homes and says, oh my gosh, they got beer in their house? No. If you do, that's between you and God. I do find it interesting, though, that there have been many times over the last several years that I'll be at Wegmans and someone will have a case of beer in their cart. And the fidgetiness is personified 10,000% because I don't know why. They feel guilty that they're buying beer in front of the preacher. And they just kind of casually start moving things around to cover it. It's like the person you knock on the door and they're smoking a cigarette and they kind of put it behind their back all of a sudden because the preacher's at the door because you can't see the smoke rising behind them. Listen, you don't stand before me when you die one day. You stand before God. He's the one that you have to deal with. But I would prayerfully ask you to consider, is it best, is it, is it what's, what would bring glory to God in my life? Let's pray.